pressure from Thomas off the edge. Eli Manning airs it out down the field. It is caught by Tyree. Oh my God. This ball's thrown and Tyree just goes up for it like a basketball player. Harrison trying to knock it down. That's a great catch by David Tyree. Welcome to Catch the Moment Podcast. I'm your host, David Tyree. Super excited to bring you another episode to get you the insight, information on your journey, give you the process, the pain points, point you in the way of being an overcomer. Today, I have a really, really exciting uh, guest, a man of tremendous wisdom, impact, and experience, the four stories. Welcome to the pop. Thank you, Dave. I'm catching the moment. You is catching the moment. <laughs> you have caught many a moments, my friend. And um, obviously, we probably had a whole whole podcast episode just understanding that we were cut from the same cloth i mean before we start talking about some of your impact and accomplishments and um even some of your message with some of your 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 your, uh, writings talk about the foundational life because you're a man of tremendous impact and i kind of view you as an advocate so um what was the formative years for the four stories like and how did how does that thread come to fruition well my father was from Brooklyn. Okay. And My dad would love to hear that. <laughs> and, uh, and he was deeply Brooklyn. You know, his father was Jamaican. Okay. So his father immigrated to the country and like many Jamaicans went to Brooklyn. No doubt. My mother was from Montclair. From Montclair. New Jersey. Nice. And they met in, in college at New York University. And when they got mm-hmm. married, they got married when my mom was 19. And she Those went, are the good old she days. She straight from my... From, from her mother's house to my father's house. But okay. my father lived in his mother's house in Brooklyn. Okay. And my mother was deathly afraid of New York. <laughs> too, too many people, too, 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 living too close together, yeah, too yeah. much noise. And so my mom told, told my dad, listen, you know, I, I'm in this, but I can't live in New York. Yeah. So they moved to my grandmother's house in Montclair, my mother's mother. My mother's mother had been a domestic worker in Virginia. Okay. And like a lot of the black families in the south end of Montclair. Yeah. She came to Montclair from Virginia with the white family for whom she worked. Wow. And that whole southern end of Montclair consisted of a lot of people whose families dropped them off in the south end and then moved to upper Montclair. Man, he's talking about some legacy information right here. Jersey's going to so, love this. So a lot of us, and we didn't know, I mean, we didn't know it. We had a nice house and yeah. a lawn. But a lot of us were the descendants of people who basically were the extension of slavery. Wow. So my grandmother wasn't owned, but she called the white people that she worked for her family. Nice, nice, nice. And, and so I grew up there in the south end of Montclair. I was there from about three years old to fifth grade. And I walked in Ishwain School. Yeah. We had Mr. Page was the police officer yep. on the corner. And yep. he knew the family. Everybody knew everybody. And what's interesting, when I look back, for instance, no one in our neighborhood was being raised by a mother only. Wow. No one. Wow. And I'm talking now the 50s and 60s. Sure. I didn't know what divorce was. Man. We didn't have any crime. I could be down the street at Joe Evans' house when the street light came on. Yeah. As long as I was inside one of those houses, yep. it was all right. So it was a real community. So you really... They talk now about a village. I mean, we had an actual community. village. It wasn't just geography. It was, we were interconnected. 
So that's how I grew up. I went to an all-black school. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was segregated. You know, we got the books that the white kids in Upper Montclair used yep. before they came down to, to Lower Montclair. <laughs> but, but we also had sports. We played in the park. We had recreation that was free. I played Little League Baseball. And, yeah. And, of course, you know, we lived in the same town with sports heroes that I didn't realize were nationally known. I just knew they were sports. Larry Doby lived Larry, around the corner from Yogi me. Yogi Berra. And Yogi Berra and, and all, all kinds of folks. Wally Choice <laughs> played for the Globetrotters. But it was that kind of community. My family was very religious. I grew mm -hmm. up going to church. And between the community, the school, and the church, I, I really was, was saturated with purpose, mm. with a sense of destiny. I never felt inferior to anybody. Yeah. And we knew from childhood that we, we were to work hard to become great. That was excellent. So, man, like what you experienced is really what the entire world is, is, is basically looking for now on the heels of segregation and let's say coming out of some injustice, but you didn't experience that within your ecosystem and your world as a, as a kid growing up. So talk, talk to me, like when you said, that, this is one of the most powerful statements I had, you were infused with destiny and purpose. So as I, as I began to see your track record, you become like, what was the steps toward, because you have experience and, and um, not just corporate governance, community. Um, you have been a community pioneer. You have the state of New Jersey, Secretary of State. Like, how does that vision begin to come to pass? Because you did already tell me, like, you, you had aspirations in baseball that your dad kind of nixed in the... So Yeah, I did. I wanted to be an athlete. And up until about ninth grade, I was completely focused on girls and sports. <laughs> Period. <laughs> But, that's, that's, that's pretty much how I got lost, but please continue. <laughs> but, you know, in 1968, Martin Luther King was killed. Mm. And it didn't mean that much to me. You know, Dr. King came to Montclair. Really? Oh, yeah. he came The year before he was killed, he came to Montclair, spoke at Montclair High School, spoke at Union Baptist Church. He marched from Orange Road all the way up to Union Baptist Church. I mean, he was there because, listen, because... His mentor was Reverend Dr. Samuel Proctor. Okay. Dr. Proctor succeeded Adam Clayton Powell as the pastor of Abyssinian Church in New York huh. in the early 1970s. Yeah. Dr. Proctor's pastor was Reverend D.C. Rice, who was the pastor of Union Baptist Church in Montclair. Wow. Got it. So Montclair had deep, deep roots in civil rights and education. Yeah. Uh, Bill Gray succeeded Dr. Rice as pastor of Union Baptist Church, his father had been president of Florida A&M University. Whew. So we had a lot of black aristocracy. Yeah. So when Dr. King was killed, um, I went from baseball practice at Whitman Field by my grandmother's house. By that time, we had moved to Harrison Avenue. And I went by there to get some sweet potato pie. <laughs> and I saw my grandmother sitting at her dining room table with tears in her eyes all by herself. Mm. And I had never seen my grandmother cry. Mm. She, two of my uncles died, even at the funeral at St. Paul's Church. She never cried. Wow. So, of course, my mind went off of the sweet potato pie. Sure. To trying to figure out what made my grandmother cry. And, and I said to her, I said, Grandma, why are you sitting here crying in the, in the, in the dining room by yourself? Mm. She said, they shot Dr. King today. And what happened to me, Dave, was this. 
my grandmother was an, an older, quiet, domestic worker, Pentecostal. She didn't believe in marching. Yeah. She didn't believe in protests. I mean, yeah. she was quiet. She believed if you pray, pray. God was going to work it all out, right? So I never knew she had such affection for Dr. King. Yeah. And frankly, at that moment, I didn't know why. But that moment, because my grandmother and I were like best friends, both oh, of my grandmothers. Powerful. I said, you know what? I'm going to learn everything I can about this man. Sure. And I want my life to be as meaningful to someone as Dr. King's life was to my grandmother. Uh, you know, it's a powerful statement because you said to someone where most people are reaching for the masses with their areas of impact where you realize that if you could have that kind of impact on someone, it would be worthwhile. Well, very few people really have an opportunity like you had a platform that basically can communicate with the world. Most okay. of us have to go one person at a time. That's right. It's true. But, but even with a platform, if you're really talking about impacting a life yes. that's sustainable, it still happens one person at a time. Man, you speak in my heart. You can get access because of a platform. Correct. But you make an impact one mm -hmm. person at a time. Wow, this is... Well, we, we, we cut into the rug right here. We cut into the rug. This is getting fantastic. All right, so talk to me about how you begin to navigate. Obviously, this heritage is something I've grown as a, as a man to be really passionate about. Um, just, just Montclair, and I'm like, what kind of unique experience did I experience? Because anyone who comes out of this, this community recognizes, especially now as we matured, that this was, this was different. You're now a sage and a tremendous point of impact and authority and like how does this now translate to current day because now with your experience you have these DEI initiatives and I'm not going to create this crazy conversation around the woke narrative but there's two different agendas right there's a righteous agenda and there's another agenda right so how like at what point does do you see your position of impact and business and community and again even within the church how does that become an intersection? And at what point do you recognize the need and begin to find your space? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me that because I've been in government. I've been in religious institutions. I've taught in colleges. I've written books. And a lot of people ask me that question, but they ask it in a very shallow way. Here's what they'll say. Um, how do you wear so many hats? Oh, no. You, you, didn't ask me <laughs> you didn't ask me that question. And I love that because you don't wear a lot of hats. You have one head. Yes. So you wear the same hat in different places. In different places. So I've been the same me, whether I've been in government, in church, or wherever, I've been the same me. And what happens is you build a life based on principles. Yeah. That's number one. You build a life based on goals. You set goals. And, and you pursue those goals within the framework of your values and your principles. And you create a strategy. Mm. Mo most people have dreams without strategies. Yeah. And so they look forward to things, but they don't have a practical, this is how I plan to get there. Sure. So in, in, in Montclair, I learned that there were certain principles that you have to follow. And as a leader, I developed the skill of identifying other people that share those same principles. Uh, you need a team. I mean, you're a former athlete. You need a team. And everybody on the team has to have some core beliefs. Yes. Otherwise, it's not a team. It's a beautiful thing. And then you develop your strategy and you execute. Wow. All right. So this this is really good. <laughs> Honestly, this is this is kind of what after three years, because I wasn't as an athlete, especially in the in the time and era I grew up, you become very narrow 
and your bandwidth because you're specializing, right? Right. And it has its advantages and its disadvantages. But now business in the last three years has become that appetite where I felt like, man, I'm actually really enjoy this. But arriving at that very conclusion, this is the strategic season. So like, at what point did you feel like um, you were really kind of like, I've arrived at a place of true meaning and impact because you have, you know, I call it full-time everything. Everywhere I go is, is, is who I am and where I am. So uh, when I'm home, I'm a full-time follower. When I'm at work, I'm an entrepreneur. When I'm with the fans, I'm, I'm the athlete. Right. But I'm consistently myself and authentically myself everywhere I go, true to yourself. Where, where did you find yourself at your, at your, you know, call it your apex um, as you know, or your place of true meaning. Where was that for you? Well, right after that experience with my grandmother and Dr. King, for the next year or so, I took on leadership roles at Montclair High School. Excellent. And I, I recognized that leadership involved communications, and so I began developing communication skills. I recognized that leadership required coalitions, and so I spent a lot of time reaching out to people who were different than I was, white people, uh, rich people, poor yeah. people, and, and trying to make sure I became a better listener than I was a speaker. It is. So that I could understand people better. But to your point, I recognize that those principles and that strategy would have to conform to the specific context I was in. Mm. So when I was in, when I was in college, the biggest challenge was Black students using drugs on campus. Mm. So we organized a response to that, which was an um, anti-drug campaign, which got me kidnapped and almost killed by drug dealers. <laughs> but, oh, okay. But you'd have to read <laughs> one of my books to get the whole story. Okay, all right, all right. Um, You know, but, you know, it's, it takes courage. If you're going to lead, you have to have courage. There it is. When I left college, I went to work for Jesse Jackson because I felt that he was doing the work that Martin Luther King would have been doing had he not been killed. Sure. And And... I introduced myself to Reverend Jackson and convinced him he needed to be on his staff. Yeah. And and he was convinced. And <laughs> so at 23, I was running his new organization. Wow, 23 years old. Right, and I was a civil rights a activist. One of my frustrations, David, was this. Coming from Montclair, seeing models of success. Sure. One of my frustrations as a protest leader was that I was always frustrated that after the protest... Things weren't different, you know? Yeah. So I needed to move from protest to solving problems. I didn't want to just identify problems. Yeah. I needed to be involved in saying, look, here was the problem, here was the solution, and I helped contribute to the solution. You know what I'm very interested in? Because everything overlaps. It does. Everything overlaps, which I love, which meaning like you obviously didn't make one excuse for the areas that you were passionate about not to be involved. Right. So, you know, um, I find a lot of similarities. There's a lot of things that I don't necessarily talk about that I'm doing, but I don't feel like I can get in the arena unless I can really give everything to it. So at, at what point is this, you know, like th this corporate role, you know, you talk about teaching, obviously, you're, you're involved in protests. Um, and, and really, you have to have been a threat to different people at different stages because of some, so much of your involvement. So you got to give me at least one story because I know here you are as a, as a bold, courageous man with credibility, you know, education. <laughs> that's, that's, that's too threatening. 
So at what point do you, like, you know, are you seasoned? At 23, you're still young, but effective and passionate and, and impactful. As you move forward, at what point do you are commanding respect in the marketplace and corporate and community to the extent where you're starting to see some fruit? Well, you know, when I was 23, 24, I was working for Reverend Jackson. He described me to the owner of Ebony Magazine as being to him as he was a Dr. King. So I was moving around the country. I was gaining some notoriety among clergy and political leaders. I was basically running with the folks that work with Dr. King. And that was threatening to people, and I didn't really realize it. Because there were so many older people, there were so many political people that really wanted to be close to Jesse Jackson. Most people today don't realize that in the 1970s, Jesse Jackson was in his early 30s. He was the man. Yeah. I can a, remember it as a young kid in the 80s. Time magazine. You know, he'd go to Philadelphia and call a rally, and, and in a day, 10,000 people would show up downtown just to hear him. Wow. You know, we'd go to New York and stop by NBC, and they'd just stop the Today Show and let him come on camera. I mean, he was absolutely the man yeah. in the 1970s. But again, I, I wanted more than celebrity. Sure. And, you know, Jesse kind of fit into that celebrity leader type, yep. type role, yep. which was important and necessary for a, Carrying a, a some, lot of Carrying some years. of the agenda. Yeah. Yep, yep. But, I, but I, I wanted to be more substantive and, fo- again, focus on solutions that really left something behind that changed things for people. And, and that, was, that was a critical moment. My father died while I was working for Reverend Jackson, 1975. Oh, My wow. father was 47. Went to the <sighs> hospital, had a minor procedure, died from an overdose of anesthesia. My mother was 44. I had a little sister, eight years old. And what that did was really force me to choose between kind of rising up as a national civil rights leader or going home and helping my mom. Wow. And I decided to quit my job and go home. And wow. focus on her needs and my sister's needs and figure out what I was going to do with all of my thoughts and frustrations. And it was a few years later that I met Reverend Sam Proctor, who had been a mentor to Dr. King. Sure. And Dr. Proctor became my mentor, my surrogate father, and my professor at Princeton. Wow. So by the time I turned 39 and Dr. Proctor basically sent me to this little church in Somerset, New Jersey. First Baptist Church, and it had about 800 members, and it was in a low-income neighborhood. Uh, By the time I got there, I kind of knew who I was, what my role was in life in the community, and more importantly, what impact the church should make besides just having good church on Sunday morning. (laughs) So we set on a mission. We set on a mission to have a, a real good church where people grew spiritually sure, and didn't just sing and shout and have a good time where we focused on education. Excellent. So the kids were singing in the choir, but not flunking out of school. Excellent. And economic empowerment, Mm. changing the neighborhood, helping families get on their feet. And that was our threefold ministry, spiritual growth, educational excellence, and economic empowerment. So the church grew in 30 years. The church grew from 800 to 7,000. We built new buildings. We created affordable housing. We led a revitalization project, public-private uh, partnership. We attracted almost a half a billion dollars of new investments into that neighborhood around the church. Wow. All right, so that's, that's tremendous. So that leads me into, because usually when I 
start this podcast. Your story is so profound. I, I, I got off track of my, <laughs> of my defining thing. So, you know, I'm going to ask this in reverse in light of understanding that part of your impact in ministry and service to the community. What would you say has been your defining moment? Because you do have layered impact. What for you as a, as, as an individual, what has been your defining moment of impact as you're still travailing yeah. um, in the earth? You know, my defining moment in my life was the night my father died and I was at my apartment and it was my job to write his obituary. Now, mind you, I had been the national director of Operation Push. I was traveling around the country doing TV interviews. I'd grown up in the church, Mm -hmm. kind of left church for a few years when I was in college. Sure. I was back in church now, but I wasn't a Christian. You said something. And and I didn't really, I I didn't think about it this way until I was, I was at my apartment. I had to write my dad's obituary. And I knew my dad well enough to know that he would want me to say about him. The most important thing in his life was his relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that he would live with God forever in heaven. Yeah. And I knew I couldn't say that about myself. Even though I was in ministry, even though I'd grown up in the church, even though I'd been baptized physically, I'd never accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. So that night, tears in my eyes, I got on my knees and said, God, I want what my dad has. That my dad was dead, he was better off than I was, and I was alive. And that was the pivotal moment. And I call it pivotal because... If you, if you understand the civil rights movement and, and, and all of the rhetoric of civil rights, it's really based on a kind of religious rhetoric. 100%. Right? But what I discovered was that you can have a, a, a social movement that has a spiritual sound, mm-hmm. or you can have a spiritual movement that has social relevance. I want the latter. <laughs> and, that's, and that's what happened to me. I said, I, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't want a social movement that sounds spiritual. I want to be in spiritual authenticity and in such a way that it has social impact. That was the pivotal moment. That is so profound. Oh, that was so good because, you know, like, you know, like I said, the, the good thing for me, and I only share it because it's in the context of my own life and journey is that because I was not raised in the church, I didn't have a preconceived notion about right. Christ, the church. And it was very much, you know, I, get saved into this Pentecostal church. And of course they doing backflips and everything. And I'm down for a backflip so long as there's substance in the life. Right. After we're finished doing right. our backflip, right. <laughs> as long as there's yeah. consistency and stability. And that's what I grew and matured, you know, matured into very quickly. But it's so wonderful to hear someone with those roots come to these conclusions. Like you must be born again. You must have the transformative right. life changing encounter with the person, right? The, right. the book is about a person. Right. <laughs> so right. The book is about a person. So thank you for sharing that. So I got to ask you this, this question as well. Where were you when you saw the Super Bowl and what was your thoughts? When you saw the helmet catch? I have no idea where I was. This is fantastic. <laughs> I have and, no idea. And, Think about it. the first time you saw it, it could have been a replay. It could have been anywhere. Do you, do you remember where you were? What were your thoughts whenever you saw it? I was probably at home. Mm-hmm. I probably saw it on the news. And I thought you were Aubrey Lewis's nephew. <laughs> 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 I, 
Your name was Tyree. And Tyree, for me, was Aubrey Lewis. His sister's name was Myrna Tyree. That's right. All the Tyrees lived around Somerset. So I said, well, of course he caught the ball oh. on his helmet. <laughs> the legacy. That's what Aubrey Lewis and his and, and his family does. Yeah. Listen, and for, for context, <laughs> Aubrey Lewis was the greatest, the, the right. star ledger player of the century in New Jersey. Right. <laughs> um, and my clear roots, but sad to say I'm not true blood right. relatives, but you we definitely got the pedigree. You know, I know. I mean, well, you know what? We say, family. We, right, I, we right. family. That's, that's the way I say it with the Tyrese. They've had. But that's what I thought. Yeah. As as when I saw that catch and when I heard about you, I said, of course. I mean, that's, that's not a big thing. That's the pedigree a, right there. Yeah, that's not a big <laughs> thing for a Tyree. <laughs> this, this is amazing. So in light of these, these places of impact, um, you know, and you talk economic empowerment. This is now, you, you've lived through so many places, and especially in this day of the information age. Yeah. There's, like, you were hitting these places where there wasn't as much access to information. And I kind of... I kind of enjoyed the days where there was a broker to information, right? It was like now, oh. every, it's it's there's a beauty in it, and there's a just um, it's it's just trash, <laughs> okay? So because it doesn't require true credibility, it just requires a voice now. Well, and AI eliminates the need to think <laughs> and learn. It, it really does. <laughs> so everything has become technology makes things bittersweet, right? We want to be you know functional. So for the person who actually is informed, it's a great tool and resource. For the person who's not, you'll never learn anything. Right. So talk to me about, like, just when you talk about financial freedom and economic empowerment, you know, what would you say has, has been the, 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 the true keys to it? And especially in today's era, what is, what is central to our understanding in some of these areas? Here's what's central. You don't manage money. There's no such thing on an individual basis, as money management. Now, if you work for an investment bank sure. and you've got assets under management, you're managing money. Yeah. But in your personal life, you're not managing money. Okay. You're managing your life. And you're using money wisely and strategically to reach your life goals. So I don't even use the term financial management. I don't use the term financial literacy because I was literate, but I was just a fool. You can be <laughs> literate and just be crazy. And I, I was crazy. I was driving a paid-for Chevrolet when I became a preacher. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine convinced me that preachers don't drive Chevys. So I traded in a fully paid-for Chevy and borrowed money to buy a brand-new Cadillac. The payments every month were half my salary. It was completely outrageous, but I felt like a preacher because preachers drove Cadillacs. Drove you see? <laughs> so it wasn't my money that was out of control. It was my life, my values. Yeah, that's that, that, so that good. That were out of control. And so what we teach really is you've got to you've manage your life. Sure. And then you use money as a tool to help you reach your life goals. That's fantastic. And we can't get out of bounds from it. Like the, so when you talk about what are the central things? I want, I, want, I want every listener to have a, a couple good takeaways from someone with as much experience because you go into these different spheres of tremendous impact. We talk about a half a billion dollars of economic impact in Somerset County. Right. That's, that's something that most people won't have on their resume. So, <laughs> right, for, for all kinds of different reasons. So when you're talking to the individual and how this starts, you know, we know it's discipline. But what's the kind of like the, 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 the roadmap 
the three step, four steps, what are the first few steps that we need to get on track okay. to begin to command this? So my experience in coming out of that lifestyle that yeah. I was describing, and that was just one of many examples of how crazy I was. Yeah. Uh, when, I look, when I look back and figured out, how do I turn this into a strategy that I can share? Sure. I, t I summarized it into three good Ds and three bad Ds, right? Okay. Here are the bad Ds. Debt. Debt means that I'm spending money before I earn it. Excellent. Right? I'm talking about lifestyle debt now. I'm not talking about investment. No, we ain't talking about investment debt. I'm talking about debt that funds a lifestyle that I otherwise could not afford. Correct. Cadillac. Debt erodes my financial capacity because I'm paying high interest. So I'm giving money to the banks. Yeah. Giving money to the finance companies. Debt also, it eliminates my sense of reality because I'm living with all of this stuff, but it's not mine. This is so good. <laughs> so, so we start with debt. Yep. Start with that. And then the second category is delinquencies. If if I must have spent oh hundreds of dollars a month simply because I was disorganized mm. and paying my bills was not a priority. So I was paying late fees. There you go. On everything. Just late fees. Yeah. So we focus on delinquencies, getting organized, putting your things in order, setting your dates, your calendar, yes. so you can keep up with yourself. Sure. Right? And then the third is is uh, deficits. Deficit. You got to live below your means. Excellent. Oh, that was that was the so one I was hoping you would get to right there. <laughs> yeah, you have to. So it's it's having a budget, having a spending plan. You know, giving God ten percent, saving ten percent, investing ten percent. Right. So you live off of max seventy percent of your income. Excellent. When I was really, really struggling for a number of reasons, I lived on 51% of my income. Wow. Because I hadn't saved for retirement. You know, I started late. My boys had to go to college. Sure. And I just couldn't spend what I made. I didn't buy a new suit for about eight years as a pastor. And listen. <laughs> as a pastor. But that is so good to hear somebody say, though. It's like, I didn't buy it because it wasn't a priority in light of what those goals were, right? Or right. priorities. And that's... It's just profound because, like, you know, like you said, we, we want to look clean, but I think that, and I've, I, like I said, those are external things where if we, if we invest more to the internal, that's right. the thinking. Well, I was around so many rich people that I learned from them, too. Rich people don't buy expensive clothes. And, you know, the richest people I knew were wearing jeans. Back in those <laughs> days, having holes in your jeans was not a fashion statement. Yeah, but the rich white kids came to school with holes in holes their jeans. Holes in their jeans. <laughs> and we laughed at them, right? We had shot skin pants and, and alligator shoes. We broke. We broke. <laughs> we broke. So the three bad Ds were, the three bad D's. were debt, delinquencies, and deficits. And for me, once I was able to overcome those three bad Ds, True. I could make deposits and have a savings account. Excellent. I didn't have a savings account. I can earn dividends on investments and have your money work for you. There you go. And then have my name on a deed. Three good deeds. Deeds, dividends, and deposits. So, so our whole framework really grows people into a lifestyle. Excellent. From the bad deeds to the good deeds. And Ooh. so we call it deed-free. Listen, every free listener. Free from and free to. Every listener got to get you the three good deeds, <laughs> get rid of the three bad deeds. I mean, trust me. We're going to have enough to talk about moving forward. Just grateful to have access to you and your life. Tell me, you know, you mentioned a few people because I, I know that success is never exclusive. You talked about it in relation to a coalition, right? Whether that's objective-based or whether it's just life-based. 
Talk to me about who, who were some of the central figures. I know you mentioned a couple mentors along the way, but I always want to be clear about the fact that there are no self-made areas of greatness. So who were the people throughout your life, a few of the people that you would say made life-changing impact along the way? Well, certainly my father. Tremendous. My father died when I was 24, but he made such an impact on me even today. I can hear him giving me advice in certain situations. Wow. I can ask myself, what would dad do? He was the most disciplined, the most caring, most insightful person I knew. So he made an indelible impression on me, even though he died when I was 24. Mm. And then I mentioned Reverend Proctor, who had been Dr. King's mentor. Um, and I'll tell you someone who had great influence on me and the way I treat people. At Nishawane School, all the teachers were white. Mm. All the students were black, but we had a black custodian. Now, the custodian, Mr. Brown, he had a degree from a black college, but they didn't recognize it. And so they wouldn't give him a job teaching. They gave him a job as a custodian. Wow. But Mr. Brown was our Boy Scout leader, too. So he took us on camping trips on the weekends. He taught us how to tie knots. But he also, when he got to us, he would always be able to tell us what the teachers were saying about us because Mr. Brown would be in the teacher's room cleaning up. They just talk. He talk was old black Mr. Brown. And and he would tell us, son, you know, they're, they're coming for you. And you yeah. Up. And Mr. Brown, the black custodian, wow, became one of my top advisors, one of my top mentors. Mr. Brown perhaps saved my life. Wow. So, this, this, so the secretaries oh. and the custodians and the so-called little people that don't have the degrees and don't have the titles... Those are the people that True I have impact. learned to love and honor and respect. Yes. Man, you're, you're, you have, you're, you're continuing to live a life of inspiration. It's those kinds of stories. Honestly, those kind of people, I feel like the, that's where true meaning lies, right? When we place the value where it actually belongs. And your experience with people like a Mr. Brown, it shapes you to be able to transcend and become a, right. that, that advocate. Um what would you say, like, what's the best, because you've had, again, so many different areas of impact, uh, macro and micro, but I also know that you're, you're your own overcomer. Talk to me about how you overcame cancer. You know, like, I know it's a big part of your story and a big part of your book, which is Say Yes. When Life Says No. When Life Says No. Right. Excellent. We're gonna, go ahead, give me that. We're going to keep it a buck right here. This is now that's the money book. Say Yes to No Debt. Oh, okay. So give, give me some more. I didn't bring the. Didn't I bring didn't bring the kids. Well, give me some book. more. There's more. There's more. We out here live and in action. There's more. We got med. Okay, so meditation for financial freedom, but we didn't bring. We, we didn't bring. We don't have. So I'm going that. purchase. Say, say yes. This is the workbook to the book. Excellent. And then this is the the uh, devotional book, using scripture and prayer as a follow up to the book. So we, the things that you learn. You can sustain on a daily devotional basis. We're going we're gonna to get to all this, but talk to but me about because you are thing, an overcomer. Yeah, this cancer thing I learned is it attacks your mind in ways that are perhaps more serious than the attack on your body. Because what happens is you go, well, in, in, in my case, I started getting tested for prostate cancer when I was about 45. Sure. Because I had a little history in my family. So they caught it very early. But had they not caught it, I didn't feel cancer. I didn't. Yeah. You know, my body didn't feel like I had cancer. But I, I trusted the doctor. The doctor said, listen, you have cancer. Sure. And when he said you have cancer, what I heard him say is you're about to die. 
Because wow. the C word means death. So I didn't feel it physically, but in my head, Mentally. it was, you're about to die. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't want to tell my wife. I wanted to lock myself up. I wasn't motivated to do anything. I was stuck. Not because I felt bad, because my, my mind, see, the, the enemy, you know, mm -hmm. spiritual warfare is, is the warfare of deception. Yes. The devil doesn't have the power to make us do anything. Yeah. What the devil does is he, he changes the picture. Introduces. And he deceives us. That's what happened in the garden. He yes. deceived them, right? So what I did then was what I always do. I went to the scripture because I wanted to begin meditating on the healing power of God. Amen. And I went to John chapter 9 because I, I knew very well that in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. Yeah. And I was going to use that as my meditation, focusing on the healing power of God through Jesus. Yeah. What happened to me was that the behavior of the man who had been born blind became the blessing for me Ugh. and the deliverance because while I was focused on Jesus, what, what really... But God, in verse 1, it says, as Jesus walked along, he saw a man who had been born blind. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, what is that man doing outside? Ha! <laughs> because remember, I, I'm, I have cancer. Yeah. I don't want to see anybody. Yeah. I don't want to go to church. I'm the pastor of a big church. <laughs> I don't want to talk to anybody. So I'm, I'm basically locking myself up being alone. Sure. And then... The Bible says he was a man who was born blind, but he got up, he got dressed, he went outside. Went outside. And had he stayed inside like I was staying inside, Jesus would have never seen him. Man. But the fact that Jesus saw the man meant that the man said, look, I'm blind, but I'm only blind. I'm going outside. I'm out here. <laughs> I'm out here in these streets. So I began meditating and, and focusing on the behavior of the blind man. Yeah. And that's what delivered my mind from cancer. Yeah. Even before my body was free of cancer. And I wrote a whole book about it. Amazing. I wrote a whole book about that, that what I learned from that man who was born blind. Wow. I, I, life changer. I can't I can't wait to <laughs> dig into it, man. You're um you're you're I didn't know you knew about that. I didn't bring it. I, wow, I do a little research, a little <laughs> research. <laughs> Well, like I said, you have so many, you know, as, as you stand here today, what are you most excited about and where do you find yourself, you know, like, you know, because you're a man of purpose living with intention. So where are you directing most of your efforts at today um, as a leader and a man of impact? Yeah, I'm excited, first of all, about my work in helping um, black men and black women mostly understand how to become corporate directors and sit at the table of real corporate power. Mm. I'm excited about that. Because no one taught me how to do it. I just, you know, God blessed me and had good mentors once I got there. Sure. The second thing I'm very excited about is this. This is a biblically-based church tool mm -hmm. to help people with money. Powerful. I'm converting this into a product to sell to companies using the same principles, Excellent. slightly different narrative, so that Companies can help employees with their financial wellness on the job. Excellent. Then I'm taking the profits that are going to come from the sales from the corporations and fund my foundation to keep working with churches. Tremendous. And in Africa and in the Caribbean. Oh, man. So that's number two. Then my last project, my very last project, this is number three. Uh, I've started developing a 
documentary on African royal families. Uh. I was traveling somewhere overseas, and, and I heard on CNN, somebody said, the royal family. And I just left Africa with a royal family in Africa. And I'm True. like, they are a royal family. They're not the royal family. We got uh, royal families all over Africa right now. Right now. So I've started with Ghana. I've got a guy in Uganda. I've got a woman in Botswana. We've got huh. some folks in South Africa. And we've got a whole plan. In fact, that was the call I was on before. Tremendous. Before uh, we're going to do a whole series of documentaries on African royal families today. What they do, Powerful. how they use their power, what the culture is. Yeah. It's it's such a. Then I'm going to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) I tell people all the time. I said I've been fortunate to have my you know my unique experiences up to this point, but it's it's heaven to bust. The way I live my life is nothing will ever be at the expense of eternity. Right. And um, uh, it's 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 been fortunate to meet again people like yourself. That's aligned with the same motive and intention. You know, I, I got I got so many different things I really want to ask you, but well, I'm, we'll I'm come back and do it again. We, we're gonna come back and do this again because you know your life has gone before you. And honestly, I think it's just important for people like me to continue to celebrate and elevate people like yourself because not only have you gone forth and done the work. But, you know, we're starting to miss out on some of this culture of like, man, we need to not just know the history. I'm a big history buff in general. Love my documentaries. But we we don't know the story, so you can't value it properly when you don't know the story. And I'm talking about the truth. Right. Like not, not the fabricated story, not the one-sided story, not the left and right story, but the true story and find true justice, true equity according to the mind and heart of God. And your life really very much inspires and exemplifies it. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Last question on on the way out. You know, we talk about catch the moment. You've been catching this moment here with me. What's the best comeback story that you've been a part of? <laughs> oh, the best comeback story is my own. There you go. I was hoping you would say it too. <laughs> I'll tell you. For, for 13 years, I was living credit card to credit card, paying bills late. Really? Now, I'll, at I'll what stage with, in your life? I'll because you with bill collectors. <laughs> He was going, you've always been a protester. Right, right. I'm fussing with bill collectors. And uh, my grandmother died. My, my grandmother from Brooklyn died. Okay. When she died, she left three houses paid for. Wow. And I'm standing at her grave in New York saying to myself, you know, if I died with all of my education and notoriety, all I'd have to leave behind is credit card bills. My grandmother had sixth grade education. She had a husband who couldn't work because he had a stroke after the sixth child. And when she died, she owned three houses, one of which she left me and my uncle. My first wow. real estate I inherited from my grandmother. Mm. And for the next four years, I just changed my life. I got out of my bachelor apartment that cost me a lot of money every month. Broke the lease early. I sold all of my furniture. You know, back in the day, you could go to Newark and buy $3,000 worth of furniture. And pay twenty two dollars a month for eighty nine years. <laughs> eighty nine so, years. So, so I sold all my furniture and I paid off eighty seven years early. <laughs> I sold my luxury car and bought a two door Honda with a stick shift and no air conditioning. Excellent. Paid cash. I got rid of all of my debt Frugal. and I moved back to my mother's house and for six months slept in a sleeping bag. She didn't have room for me. Yeah. I slept in a sleeping bag on the floor of my mother's house for six months. I was a pastor then. I'm, wow. I'm a community leader. 
but no one knows that at the end of the day, I'm going to mom's house going to mom's and, house. and sleep on the floor because I took all of my rent money, all of my furniture money, all of my car note money and paid off debt, credit cards, student mm-hmm. loans. And by the time I was 35 and had just gotten married, I was completely debt free. Debt free. And I started building my financial life. God bless you. Man, so, so I'm, I'm the comeback story you do, you do, financially. The great comeback, Mr. DeForest. Well, listen, man, I'm, I'm truly, again, I'm truly honored. I look forward to the, the continue to build. Thank you for being a, a leader. Thank you for shaping a legacy. I mean, it's no surprise coming out of Essex County, coming out of Montclair, New Jersey. This is the pedigree. This is what we do. What Thank we you do. for catching the moment with us. Thank you, brother. We're going to do some work together. We got, we got to do some work. I, this this, this is the man I've been looking for. I didn't even know I was looking for you. <laughs> so listen, thank every guest for tuning in. You have truly heard what it is to have a process, heard some of the pain points, some of the moments of humiliation that's going to get you to your next moment. Y'all stay tuned. We'll check in soon.